Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. Good morning, everybody. Happy Thursday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. Indeed we do. It's another bro show. Bro there week. we go. Uh, sad circumstances because one of yeah. Crystal's kids is sick, but she will be back. She uh, she says that uh, one of her kids is on the mend. Turned and the corner, uh, doing well. Is looking good. We're, so we're don't, don't worry about it, but we are, we're going to give her all the time that she needs. And we, we uh, thank you all for uh, some of the messages that you guys uh, sent in. But before we get to that, man, setting up these stories is tough, especially on a day like today. We have so many things to go over, Ryan and I. Number one, we're going to start with the 2024 race. We're going to go over, since things look like where they're trending for the general election, Biden and Trump, we've known that for a while. We're going to look at some of the things that are good for Biden, some of the things that are bad for Biden. Same with Trump and vice versa. Also, some breaking news yesterday. The Texas governor appears to be uh, kind of putting his middle finger in the face of President Biden and the Supreme Court after being ordered to take down some razor wire at the U.S. southern border. This is setting up a possible confrontation with the federal government. Lots of uh, Republican governors backing up Governor Abbott. And this certainly could be a major story on top of what's going on with the border crisis continuing. We're also, Ryan and I, going to break down some of what's happening with the Houthis and continuing war in the Middle East. Biden administration continues to say we're not at war in the Middle East. We just happened to bomb three countries <laughs> in a single day. Boeing, you guys know I love uh, airline stories and uh, everything to do with that. Boeing, the manufacturing crisis and more is just getting way worse for them. Alaska Airlines CEO saying they found multiple doors with loose plugs. And we have confirmation now from the Seattle Times that it was, in fact, Boeing's fault for misinstalling that door. We're also going to talk about Zen, nicotine, a, a subject near and dear to my own heart um, here, Ryan. And we're going to talk about Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader. He wants to ban uh, Zen pouches and nicotine. Interesting. He came for Four Loco first, and now he's coming for this. And then John Stewart. John Stewart is returning to The Daily Show. He'll be the executive producer there, and he'll be hosting the show on Monday, trying to rescue uh, the corpse from what Trevor Noah has left behind. And then finally, Emily Cobb is going to 
be joining us actually in the studio. She is a phenomenal reporter at the right, uh, was it Right to U- Know? U.S. Right to US Know. U.S. Right to Know. Yeah, the, I've used the, some of her work here in the past. It's about lab leak. Why don't you tell us yeah, about it? I think reasonable debate on yeah. this question around COVID origins is over as a result yes. of her latest uh, reporting, which uh, comes from a bunch of FOIA documents uh, that she pulled up. Yeah. Without teasing uh, too much of it, 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 it's shut. This is it. Yeah, the this case is, is the done. case. It's the done. case is closed. Uh, it's been closed for a while in my mind, but Emily is the one who gave us the evidence. So we're going to talk to her. And, you know, again, I want to give total accolades. She has been an absolute warrior on this subject now for a long time. But let's go ahead and begin uh, with the 2024 race. Where do things stand? Exactly. I have been keeping my eye, Ryan, on the Biden HQ website and on their Twitter page mm-hmm. in particular, because this has given us a real preview in how the Biden administration is going to be campaigning. And over and over again, we see a consistent theme, abortion, abortion, row, row, row. That's all they want to talk about. And for good reason, it seems to be the best single electoral thing that they have for them. Here was President Biden just a few days ago in one of a major campaign speech. Here's what he had to say. Listen to what he says. Trump says he's proud that he overturned Roe v. Wade. He said, and I quote, there has to be punishment for the women exercising the reproductive freedom. He describes the Dobbs decision as a miracle, but for American women, it's a nightmare. So let's be absolutely clear what Trump is bragging about. The reason there are 21 states where abortion bans are in effect, made with no exception for rape or any other or incest, is Donald Trump. There you go. So you can see a preview of uh, where things are going. At the same time, uh, President Biden got a pretty good lift yesterday. Uh, Ryan, he got the endorsement of the United Auto Workers. Sean Fain, who we've covered a lot here on the show from his time at the strike, he actually delivered that endorsement yesterday. Let's take a listen. Now, here's what Trump did to help the American auto worker in our 2023 historic stand-up strike now that he's running for president. He went to a non-union plant, invited by the boss, and trashed our union. That's right. And here is what Joe Biden did during our stand-up strike. He heard the call, and he stood up, and he showed up. So that's a choice we face. It's not about who you like. It's not about your party. It's not this bullshit about age. It's not about anything but our best shot at taking back power for the working class. All right, Ryan, so abortion and unions. Uh, Normally, I would say, yeah, that's pretty potent. At the same time, the bullshit about age, I'm not so sure that Mr. Fain should be. Let me ask you this. Uh, If you, would you want Joe Biden, UAW members, would you want him on the line next to you? Or would you want him well into his pension and to his retirement, which you fought very, very hard for in your more recent deal? (laughs) UAWs are no different than the rest of Americans in the sense that they don't get a choice. This is it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Biden... Or Trump. That's, a, that's true. And, and both yeah. both of these uh, rallies are actually useful windows into the other problem that Biden has, because both of them were disrupted by protests great over point. Gaza. Over ceasefire. Uh, my yeah. colleague Prem Tucker over at uh, The Intercept has a good piece on how there was a lot of dissent 
um, within the UAW about the timing of this endorsement that they wanted, that the UAW has come out for a ceasefire and there were mm -hmm. people inside the UAW who were saying, get the UAW back to its, its 60s and 70s roots of being a kind of vehicle for social justice broadly. UAW sponsored uh, the March on Washington, for instance. Like they, they're the ones that financed Martin Luther King's I Have a, I Have a Dream speech. And th that has been uh, that has been something that has been near and dear to their legacy for decades now. And at, and there was a ma major disruption at the at the endorsement ceremony mm -hmm. um, with UAW protest, uh, UAW members protesting the president over Gaza. At his speech in Manassas where, you know, his, the centerpiece of it was abortion rights. Again, uh, you had endless disruptions uh, from the from the audience protesting his his support for uh, his unconditional support for Israel's war on Gaza. And so what it's showing is that he can't really go anywhere, you know, for the, for the next year unless he can get to some type of resolution right. or they put in a different candidate who's not so closely associated with this. And what what kills uh, so, like so many progressives is that it's true. He was the first president to join a picket line. Mm -hmm. Sean Fain there's a kind of that's my president vibe yes. that that he has, right. and maybe he will be your president right. you know, one day down, down the line. Uh, he did he did join Fain on the picket line. They did win a historic contract, and it is true that abortion is on the ballot. Like all of these things are true, but but they're being stained by the blood of right. so many innocent Palestinians. I'm glad that you put it that way because that's like the dichotomy of Biden. And also, even with the union front, wanted to make sure that we flag this. Fain actually, in a speech, even was like, look, some people are not gonna vote for Biden. Some people, he's yeah. like, and many people even admitted, don't forget this, some 40% of union households went right. for Trump in 2016. I don't know the exact numbers for 2020. I was struck by uh, Sean O'Brien, who we've actually had um, here on the show. He's the president of the Teamsters Union. He was actually on Fox news yesterday and he said listen you know we've invited trump we want him, we want to come meet with him and i think that demonstrates yeah. where some of his base actually was he said a little bit of this yesterday let's take a listen so we met with donald trump uh two weeks ago um and we are meeting with our general executive board and rank and file members uh, at the teamster headquarters on january 31st uh we've extended the invitation to president biden we're talking to the white house now to try and schedule both on the same day um and we think it's important that we're meeting with all candidates. Uh, we have a very diverse membership, 1.3 million members. So we owe it to our members to do our due diligence and make the recommendation what's in the best interest of uh, teams to members nationwide. There you go. So he's invited yeah. President Trump. I mean, he hasn't endorsed him per se or any of that. But I, I mean, I look, I always think these union guys have a much better pulse of politics because they got real memberships that right. they got to deal with. You know, they got to get reelected. They got to make sure that their constituents are satisfied. Look, most and, likely he's going to endorse Biden. But the whole point is that even endorse, even inviting Trump there, I mean, in a certain way, uh, Sean Fain has been a little bit more partisan on that. But Fain, like I said in the speech, is still realistic that he's like, look, not everybody is going to support Biden. Right. You know, some people are going to support Trump. Right. And yeah. the and the way that it went down with uh, with Trump and the strike, with with Trump going out and speaking to a non-union crowd, mm -hmm. invi invited literal by literal management, mm -hmm. uh, you know, didn't didn't leave Fain a whole lot of choice. Although the UAW certainly didn't make it easy for Trump to come address. Like it, it wasn't as if Trump really had. He could have dropped in on a picket line, and that that could have been interesting. But it wasn't like the UAW leadership was going to make it easy for Trump to show his show his support. Uh, O'Brien is is following the, the in the footsteps of this like hundred year uh, union legacy of pushing for support from both parties because whoever's in the White House, you know, working people are going to have interests. 
that they're going to that they're going to want to you know push uh, any particular White House, whether it's Trump or somebody else. So uh, by by keeping those doors open, you know that could be useful to Teamsters, the Teamsters members themselves. Um, the best thing perhaps that we have about Biden is the NLRB. His appointments to the NLRB have been consistently maybe the most pro-worker in, in the agency's history. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the Republicans on the NLRB continue to vote with bosses, with management, against workers. And so there is a push from people like Hawley and others in the Republican Party to create a kind of worker uniparty so that uh, there, is, there is power when it comes to the FTC, the FCC, the NLRB, other agencies that you've got kind of Hawley populist right Mm pro-worker Republicans who become commissioners on these boards, and then you've got Democratic pro-worker boards. Because for 40 years, the the corporate bosses had the opposite. No, no, No matter who was in the White House, corporate America was able to pick who, who ran yes. these administrative states. So there's a war over the administrative state and O'Brien kind of being friendly with Trump can help grease some of that. It's very, absolutely true. And that's the thing. I mean, Trump, you know, we shouldn't forget, he played footsie rhetorically mm-hmm. with the unions. In general, he basically just didn't pay attention to it while he right. was in the White House, but maybe he like will this things. time. It's, right. very, it's very possible he yeah. could actually this time around. Returning to abortion, one sign again that this is just going to be front and center for the Biden campaign. Let's go and put this one up there on the screen. Kate Cox, who you will remember, we actually covered her here on the show, the Texas mother who experienced like that nightmare situation mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, the because of the abortion law was not able to get an abortion, even though, you know, she, what was it? Her fetus was diagnosed with something that was like completely it was term- viable. It, it, it was a terminal It was terminal illness. diagnosis. And, right. they're, and they're like, no, we're not doing anything until it dies, which yes. puts you at extreme risk because you could, you could die from an infection. Yeah. Like you have to get, you have to get that treated immediately. You know, if a fetus dies inside of you, and they're like, no, yeah, you just wait until then, and you could get sepsis and die as a result. So she eventually had to leave the state. She left the state. She became kind of a national figure right. because of the story, because she, especially because she, I believe she was already a mother, and she like wanted another baby, and so she's kind of the prototypical right, case exactly. for a lot of people in the pro-choice movement, kind of the effects of right, this. I know the pro-lifers right. were arguing, and they were like, well, you know, not theoretically, technically, you know, the diagnosis doesn't necessarily mean what it means. I'm not gonna sit here and litigate, you know, medical conditions of, uh, of 21st week fetus, but I right. will say, you know, Politically, I think we've seen enough data to know where this bears out. And I think it's probably a smart move on behalf of the Biden administration. She will be joining Jill Biden at the State of the Union. We will be doing live coverage here of the State of the Union. And, you know, the State of the Union right before the election is always a vehicle for the presidential campaign. If we think back to Trump in the 2019 presidential uh, State of the Union, it was the exact same thing. It was about the immigration. It was anti-impeachment. Some of that was going on. And a lot of it was about the economy, about low interest rates, et cetera. So these are always a good way to look at things. Now, in terms of the election, something we flagged yesterday that we want to make sure, again, everybody takes away is that while Trump definitely won and he won by double digits, there's some troubling data for him. And even in the GOP polls, let's put this up there. Steve Kornacki flagged this. We have never seen a gap, he says, between the independent vote and the Republican vote in the New Hampshire GOP primary like we saw in the New Hampshire primary of Tuesday. Trump won Republicans by 49 points, but Nikki Haley took independence by 22 points. That is a swing of 71. The previous high on that, 
was 40 points. So I just think we all need to pause and maybe just think a little bit about the fact that Nikki Haley was able to dramatically win over these independent voters such that we could view her as a vehicle, as we saw here before, Ryan, how many clips did we play of Haley voters being like, I'm voting for Biden? So if that's a preview of things to come, well, you know, an independent voter or others who were so critical in the 2022 midterms, a lot of them swung Democrat. They don't even like the Democrats. They're not particularly pro-Biden or any of that, but they genuinely are so repulsed both by Stop the Steal and by abortion that they're willing to come out and to vote. And there's something very interesting there where it's, look, I think if you just live your life in online circles, you know, it's hard to put your finger on that, but we always need to remember, you know, even the people who watch the show, the vast majority of the people who watch the show, you're just not, you know, on average, you are not one of the deciding votes whenever it comes to uh, the election. You probably know who you're voting for. Yeah, Yeah. not even, even if you know who you're voting for. I'm talking about the median voter, median, is like 55 years old and doesn't have a college degree. Just think about that. I mean, it's crazy. There's so much older than the vast majority of people who consume content online. And the fact is, is that young voters, yeah, I mean, they can think, affect things on the margins. But in general, like, you people don't vote. And when you don't yeah. vote, it's like, well, then your voice is not going to be heard. And the election is going to be decided by people who are way older than you and consume very different yeah. media than you. I think that's another critical point I want to put. If I were going to try to offer Trump some cope, you would say, all right, well, a lot of those Nikki Haley people uh, were actual Democrats. Right, who Democrats became, anyway. Who became right. undeclared just so they could mess in, in the primary. But having covered so many elections, it, it is extremely rare that shenanigans like that move things beyond on the margins. Mm-hmm. And so you, anytime you try to explain things with shenanigans, you're probably going to outsmart yourself. And so you're probably seeing what you think you're seeing, which yeah. is that a lot of independents, and even if you take, take 10, 20% of those and, and move them aside because they were just a 19-year-old Democrat who voted in the primary, you're still talking a 50-point swing, which is just, which we've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Somebody who wins in a blowout fashion, double digits like that in New Hampshire, usually is going to be at least even yes. or winning yes. with independents, not getting crushed with independence. The final piece of data I want everybody to take away from this is that uh, things are both looking good and bad for Biden. So this is why we're putting these two things together. Put this up here. So, you know, just yesterday, we saw a new poll, Susquehanna, decent poll out of the state of Pennsylvania, decent sample size and all of that. And what do they find? Biden, 46.8%. Trump, 39.3%. Not sure at 7.6 and other at 5.6. So, you know, we got some undecideds there. Enough, you know, if they all went Trump to put him over the edge. And he definitely did compete in the state pretty well in 2020 and obviously won the state back in 2016. And you should never count him out, especially, I think, in the industrial Midwest. In general, the KNS rule was uh, to add five to a Trump number in, in any of these regions. <laughs> but Let's, here's the thing. In 2022, the KNS rule was reversed. You actually should minus five for <laughs> Republicans. So that's one of those where, you, that's why it's not really a rule. It's more of a vibe. And you know, for these, it's just, you should say, I don't know. I don't know. You could really read things two ways. So I would look at this and be like, man, you know, Biden, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. But then let's put the next one here up on the screen. How popular is Joe Biden? Well, he's got a 55.7% disapproval rating and a 38.8% approval rating. That's putting him in Jimmy Carter territory going into the general election. He's got a 17-point spread between disapprove and approve. He's been unpopular now for years, for the vast majority of his short presidency. He only was really popular for a year. And as you can see from that trend line, things did not go well for him. You know, October 2021, 
really is, I think, just such a turning point for the Biden presidency because it's the chaos of Afghanistan. And by the way, I supported mm. Afghanistan. I, right. I actually supported withdrawal. But let's be real. Politically, it was a disaster. Let's all just be honest about that. Media bears responsibility, but Biden does too, you know, just for the total chaos. But on top of that, that was, you know, that was in the midst of like vax craziness, mm. COVID craziness, Delta variant, I mean, diapers. I inflation. Exactly. There was 9% yeah. inflation. It's just never yeah. recovered from that. So I could look at this thing truly two ways. The 2022 data, I'd be like, okay, I, I would not feel great if I was Biden. I would feel okay. Uh, and then I could look at it the other way and in any traditional metric with the economy where it is and everything else. And I'd say, man, you know, Biden is going to get, you know, absolutely creamed in the yeah. election. So it's one of those where we're, oh, we're going to continue to try and present this case. I just encourage everyone, like, don't live in a bubble and try to look at contravening data and just mess with it in your head. Yeah. Don't have to draw a conclusion of either or, just anything could happen. Yeah. That's my main takeaway. What's What's been so interesting to see is that consumer confidence and people's feelings about the economy have yeah. absolutely exploded in the last two months. You're, yes, that's you're right. Seeing, the last three months in particular. You're seeing the biggest swings right. in uh, in an upward direction, uh, perhaps, uh, than you've seen like since they started looking mm -hmm. at the data. Uh, and so if, if that continues, that's extremely helpful right. for Biden because then you would have a year of people feeling good about the economy, and which could be enough time for a lot of people to recover a lot of what they lost through inflation and and the precarity of of twenty twenty one. Yeah. So, yeah, it's this is a wide open race, <laughs> even though uh, both people ought to lose. Yeah. No, absolutely. I've said that. You know, it's it's pathetic that either has a fifty percent chance. <laughs> yes. And yet, yes. that's the situation. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Immigration 
top issue in New Hampshire for Republican voters, top issue in Iowa, huge. If you're watching and consuming any conservative media, this is it, number yeah. one. And if you are looking at GOP voters and others, if you want to say like the main reason people are going to vote Trump, this is the issue. And now we are seeing a major standoff. You guys did a great job yesterday of covering the Supreme Court case, but there's been some major development now since, which is after the Supreme Court issued an order where they said that Texas officials cannot obstruct federal, what is it, federal border patrol agents right. yeah. from cutting the wire. They have now began actually putting even more razor wire at that border crossing, which has now become like a critical juncture. Now, I was explaining this to you, Ryan. Uh, people are, you know, many people, including the Texas governor, are showing, you know, they're making this a big show. Many GOP governors joining them as well, being like, that's right, like he's defying the law technically. And the, I asked some of my Republican f lawyer friends, I said, okay, what's going on here? Yeah. So the technical explanation is this. The court order says, well, you can't obstruct the feds from cutting the wire, but that doesn't mean you can't put up a ton more wire. Yeah. So there's definitely a little bit of a loophole. It's certain, you know, almost certain the Biden administration, they either may challenge us in court, they could send the feds and the military, they could try and federalize the Texas National Guard, which is putting this up. There are all kinds of very interesting possibilities. Uh, Jorge Ventura, he's a great reporter over at News Nation, actually did a segment uh, showing how the Texas uh, officials actually putting up even more razor wire after the decision yesterday. Let's take a listen to some of his report. Texas officials say they are going to hold the line and double down on their operations inside Shelby Park. Actually, right now we're witnessing Texas officials installing even more of that razor wire and anti-climbing fencing. Now, the reason why they're installing some of that razor wire and fencing on top of the shipping containers is we have witnessed several migrants going on top of the shipping containers and entering Shelby Park illegally that way. Texas officials say they're going to continue to beef up security here. As of right now, federal agents are still not allowed in Shelby Park. We're gonna take a look at the scene over here. Actually, we're witnessing right now migrants that have actually been blocked uh, by that razor wire. They say they've been here for at least two days. Here we have three migrants from Venezuela who cannot enter Shelby Park illegally. So this is exactly what the state of Texas is trying to do. So that was a you know important view kind of into the whole standoff. I know you guys covered it a little bit yesterday, but I think the background on all of this is obviously we've had between six and eight million people cross the border illegally since Biden took office. This has led to massive debates about catch and release, about the remain in Mexico policy, mm -hmm. about our asylum laws. We could probably do an entire episode just on the background of this. But the main political issue is that the scenes of just like millions of people coming across, I think everyone can just be agree like this is not an orderly process. Yeah. yeah, and it's like, and that's that's where I think the Biden administration suffers is that there have not been three years now in a policy that they have been able to find other than the original Trump policy, which was just straight up remain in Mexico, meaning you have to apply for asylum there. And then if you're adjudicated and approved, you can enter where if you are trying to, and you are allowing people basically to enter the border and you're doing it even it, crossing illegally, but then declaring asylum and then trying to adjudicate that here, if you're not going to hold them in some sort of detention center, catch and release is the inevitable outcome. And there's varying data. People like to put, liberals like to say that there's a 90% show up rate to the first court hearing. Conservatives are like, yeah, but what about the final court hearing? Whenever they lose their asylum claim, there's a lot of adjudication over asylum itself. But overall, Ryan, I think this is a sleeper potent issue. And I have not seen the mainstream media actually catch up to it yet. I've seen yeah. some, I saw coverage of the SCOTUS ruling, but this particular one with Governor uh, Abbott basically saying, I'm going to defy this. I have not seen it yet. Before we get into Governor Abbott's statements, do you have anything you want to go into? Just that yeah. it's fascinating how, like you said, little of an issue this is both among the mainstream media, but also among Democrats. Yes. Like Democratic voters, they're Just like- Just want to pretend. Yeah. They're like, don't care, 
Right. It's very I mean, odd. Yeah. You'll, yeah. You'll, if, you, if they see some images uh, at the border, mm -hmm. uh, they might say, oh, that doesn't look great. Right. It's not very rational. But it's but it, they're not going to expend any political capital on it. They're mm -hmm. not going to they're not going to criticize Biden. Uh, it, they're in such a difficult jam because uh, their their kind of ethics around immigration were were forged in the Trump years, mm -hmm. uh, and they took I think some positions because they were anti-Trump that they don't actually hold. You know, they they became far more kind of pro-immigrant and pro-immigration than a lot of their kind of actual instincts yeah, real, right? are, yeah. but they were driven by animus towards Trump. And so with Trump gone, now they're like, we are actually are not that pro-immigrant. Yeah, well, now, not even But that. now we're kind of stuck because we have signs in our right. yard. Exactly. And I, I think a lot of them are beholden to a lot of these immigration groups. You know, the, I, I maintain the literal most genius move that these governors did was, all right, you guys are sanctuary cities. We're just going to ship them to you. You guys can deal with it. You have all these laws, mm -hmm. right to shelter, et cetera. And now all of a sudden you've got Long Island Republicans and others sounding like people down in Texas. They're like, right. this is crazy. They're taking our, our housing. And you got people sleeping in Boston Airport. And I mean, the clips on this stuff... I cannot emphasize this enough, go viral in the right on such a level that to, to a certain point, other than the, those who are dealing with this, like in Chicago, you know, uh, California and New York, they are living, people like Democrats and Republicans are living in a different reality. But this is one of those, I think, reality forcing events specifically because it might lead to confrontation between the state of Texas and the federal government. So Texas Governor Abbott put out a statement yesterday. Let's put this up there on the screen. And can we bring our nice little highlight Function there, and I'm going to read this. He says, President Biden has violated his oath to face, faithfully execute immigration laws enacted by Congress. Instead of prosecuting immigrants for the federal crime of illegal entry, President Biden has sent lawyers into federal courts to sue Texas for taking action to secure the border. President Biden has instructed his agencies to ignore federal statutes that mandate detention of illegal immigrants. The effect is to illegally allow their en masse parole into the United States. By wasting taxpayer dollars to tear open Texas border security infrastructure, President Biden has enticed illegal immigrants away from the 28 legal entry points along the state's southern border, bridges where nobody drowns, and into the dangerous waters of the Rio Grande. Let's go to the next one, please, because this is an important pullout. They say, for these reasons, I have already declared an invasion under Article 110, Clause 3, to invoke Texas's constitutional authority to defend and protect itself. Now, as I said, all of this is being framed by the uh, Texas governor and by DeSantis, you know, even Governor Youngkin backed him up. They're like, hey, he's standing up to President Biden. I, I, I wanna be very clear. They're not in violation of the Supreme Court agreement or the Supreme Court ruling. The, the loophole is as long as you don't obstruct the feds from cutting the wire, you can still keep putting up wire. Now, will the feds take them to court and say, hey, you need to stop? I don't know. I mean, that seems politically pretty nuts on their part. But, you know, it's one of those where they're in a major standoff because border, according, and let, let me give the Biden case. The Biden case here is that the Border Patrol needs secure access to all points along the border. That's their case. And, the and border constitution gives yeah, yeah. Gives the, the constitution the gives the federal uh, government and the authority in order to take control and to have you know supreme uh, you know, supreme governance over border policy, right. even if you should disagree with it. Texas is like, no, this obviously this is our border, state border. In the constitution, they have the ability to invoke that invasion clause, which is one that goes back a long time. You're speaking to a native Texan <laughs> here, and uh, you know we take it very seriously. The ability, you know, the whole what was it, Jade Helm or whatever during Obama uh, and all of that invoking the Texas or in, you know, 
bringing up the Texas National Guard to guard against Obama and the federal government. This is deep within our DNA. Uh, my only point just being that at that time, that was definitely political. This time, I think this is, and I, I think political in the wrong way. Maybe good for Texas at the time, but not mm-hmm. nationally. This time, because it's a forcing function to get the media and others to grapple with it, I think they're in a tough spot because effectively what the Biden administration is saying is if they do challenge this, is they're like, no, we need more unfettered access for people to be able to cross the border. The Biden administration, they're not stupid. They know this is a huge problem for them. But the groups, obviously, these immigration groups and others are the ones who are like, no, you need to go through. I've seen people like uh, Beto O'Rourke and other Texas Democrats saying, no, the federal government should go in there and cut the wire. I mean, you know, it's like, it's one of those where I just think politically, given where national sentiment is on this and immigration is the number one issue where Biden loses amongst the general public and amongst independents, he's in a tough spot with this case. And, yeah. and as long as the, as long as Texas and all of them are, you know, whatever in the spirit, uh, violating the spirit, but not the letter of the law, I think they're coming out on top in this debate, Ryan. Yeah, and there's no better kind of uh, epitome of our failed immigration policy than if you had a bunch of kind of Texas Rangers laying down razor wire, yeah. <laughs> followed by a bunch of CBP exactly. guys cutting it right it's behind like, what, them. What is happening? And then behind them is a bunch of Rangers laying laying more down. And right. You've got hundreds of guys just fighting over razor wire. Right. And then you've got uh, immigration crisis yes. around, around <laughs> yeah. the rest of A bunch of Haitians and Venezuelans and Somalis being like, hey, can I come and in, with, in and with no yeah. with, with a system des- last updated in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're, what we our immigration policy now is depending on who's in the White House they just execute it like wildly differently and then fight about it in the courts until yes. they're thrown out of office and somebody else comes in. It, it is really unfortunate actually because any serious effort to try and do anything about this has been killed basically left and right. And even the Biden administration, I mean, they just, you know, they look we're ridiculous. Minute, yeah. They just look ridiculous. And John Kirby, we're gonna put this, you know, we can play some of this when he's asked about the razor wire. These people are like twisting themselves into knots, literally, to try and to defend the policy uh, of which currently stands and which uh, you know, they're trying to stand up to Texas, but then they're also not trying to endorse like completely open border. Let's take a listen to what they said. Does razor wire work? Does razor wire work for what? Does it work for the border patrol to allow them to have the access they need to be able to uh, to better process people that are uh, trying to get across the border? I don't think so. And that's why we asked for it to be removed. So yeah, there you go. It's like work for what? But the problem when is- When Trump was asked if the airstrikes are working. Exactly. It's a problem that they, they blo- have. Do the bombs blow up? Right. The problem that they have is that the Border Patrol Union is like, no, we need this. Like we actually need people to cross in an orderly fashion at the legal entry points. That's kind of where that's what, and the, the major standoff The migrants would want yeah. that too. Like everybody, well, I, I'm not so sure. I'm not oh. so sure. That's why there's a bunch of guys waiting on the other side of that. But uh, look, maybe. Uh, I think that the major point is this is part of what obscures it as well. This razor wire, this is a dent in the issue. Mm-hmm. All right. Like the major problem is, yeah, you can basically walk into this country and be like, I fear for, for fear for my life, and you can get to stay here for like two or three years while your case is adjudicated, even though you're an economic migrant and you get a work permit from the federal government. Now, listen, I think that's crazy, and I don't think that should be allowed. Although a lot of people, though, they you, do think that. I'm yeah. pretty sure you don't get a work permit, which creates this underclass of. Well, okay. Or it's very so it's hard to get the work permit. Right, yeah, permit. so you can get the work permit. Some people don't get the work permit. This also comes to the whole question around E-Verify. Uh, the Biden administration has been much more liberal in terms of, and I mean in terms of like, oh, like handing out Well, they gave a bunch of permits. Venezuelans work permits 
but exactly. it's not them. Like, There's different legal really minutiae that goes into this as to whether uh, you have a like a legitimate asylum claim. And I know that this is very, very difficult. And it can also be very emotional because it's like, well, well, what qualifies as asylum or not? And it's like, if you literally are being gunned down by gangs in the street, does that qualify as asylum? Some people would say yes. I personally would say no, because I would say it's like, listen, that's a domestic problem and that's your issue. If you want better government, you guys can deal with it in your house. Ryan, I'm sure you're about to throw on my face. You're like, well, it's your fault that those gangs yeah. exist in the first place. And I'm like, well, you know, yeah, that's technically true, but at certain points, like- I like what, that we can just have this conversation. Yeah, I'm not, I've done this so yeah. many times. It's like, I, I've been sitting here yeah. so many times. So, I mean, I guess what we can come to some sort of consensus at least on this is that the problem is that the incentive to fix it is also very low. And perfect example of this, let's put this up there on the screen is that Mitch McConnell just yesterday uh, told a closed door meeting of Senate Republicans that the politics of the border, quote, has now flipped for Republicans, casting doubt on the ability for any sort of Ukraine border deal. He says the politics have changed, and because he says Trump, who he's referred to now as the nominee, wants to run his 2024 campaign centered on immigration, and the GOP leader says, we don't wanna do anything to undermine him. Demonstrating, I mean- And what uh, what he means by undermine, Yeah. It's Normal people might right. not understand yes. that what they mean by undermine is implementing their preferred policy. Well, okay, so right? I'll, yeah, so I'll give the defense. The defense is, is that any sort of bipartisan deal would undermine the total preferred policy of the Republicans and Trump. So why would we compromise now when Trump, the nominee, not only wants to run on the issue, but if he wins and he can implement his policy? Now, I will give you the counter to that. And, and by the way, I do not support the bipartisan immigration deal. I am a pretty big uh, border hawk, but I, will, I do live in the reality of the system. And I can tell you that when Trump had unified control of Congress and he was the president, he also was not able to get comprehensive yeah. uh, border deal done. Those are the facts. I just want to be very clear. The issue, too, is that unless you have a 60-vote majority or whatever in the Senate, you're going to have to go bipartisan there no matter what, especially because they're not going to kill the filibuster. You're going to do a bipartisan deal now, or you're going to do it in the future. More likely, you're just going to do it never because the issue actually does work very well politically for most people. Yeah, I'm just so used to Democrats coming up with excuses for why they can't do things and how they're mm -hmm. going to do things in the future that whenever I hear it from any party, it's like, <laughs> you're not, you would rather this just be a giant mess than actually, than actually solve the problem. So if, the, if you want to solve the problem, what I would tell Republicans, Democrats are flat on their back right now. They're, re they're ready to trade away the entire store, mm -hmm. steal it from them. And then if you do take power in the future, be even more terrible. Yeah, that's possible. Uh, I do think it's, uh, I do think that- yeah, That's the end of my Republican consulting. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Ryan. <laughs> I do think that one of the major problems for the uh, Republicans in that right now was that a large portion, I would say half or so of the caucus, they didn't even want Ukraine aid anyways. So they're like, why would I compromise with you on the border? Yeah. They're like, I'm not gonna hold, you You know, I don't care about Ukraine. I don't care about Ukraine aid. You're the one who cares about Ukraine. You're like, yeah. I'm sitting here and I'm just negotiating on the border. So I think that political calculus behind it was very stupid from the beginning. And also what everybody forgets is the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, Mike Johnson said, I don't care what you guys are doing. Right. You either do HR2, which is the House yes. Republican bill, or nothing. That's the only thing I would agree to. Right, because Johnson's already right. uh, going to have to yeah, he's shove, in trouble. He's going to shove a spending bill down the, exactly. the right wing's throat in, right. in the House. And he's like, now you want me to do something else they don't like to? Mm -hmm. Like, get out of here. So it is that funny situation where the Senate likes to uh, operate as if the House doesn't exist. Like, that's 
kind of it's almost in the Constitution that the Senate will yes. pretend the House doesn't exist. Right. And then they will pass all these things and they'll find out the House is like just not interested in playing it along with them. My question for you is how do you think that Biden will handle this? Do you think he will escalate to the court or do you think because right now the media is not paying attention and it's just a Republican story? This is not a bad Emily, thing for Biden. Right? Emily made a really yeah. interesting point by elevating some reporting mm. uh, that it looks like Biden may have cut a deal with AMLO. Mm. Uh, what Biden will try to do is uh, reduce the number of images that we're seeing uh, along along yes. the border that will damage him politically. One way you do that is you w work with the Mexican government and say, what do you need? Uh, and there were, there, were, uh, there were a lot of reports that Trump did the same thing, that in election years, yes. he talked to the Mexican government and either he wants a caravan or he doesn't want a caravan, or, you know, whatever, whatever mm -hmm. he can do. The, Mex the Mexicans do have a significant amount of power to, you know, block people down, you know, from using the train system, yes. from down at the border, down with Guatemala, oh, yeah. uh, and, and otherwise to influence what we're seeing at the Mexico-U.S. border. So I think Trump will do a lot of that because he's got a, that, that he has leeway over. That's mm -hmm. foreign policy. Mm -hmm. Pick up the phone, AMLO, look, buddy. Now, uh, no, AMLO then has political decisions he has to make about whether or not he wants to do that or whether or not he, want, whether or not he wants to, uh, how, how much he wants to anger Trump. Because you have this, this weird irony uh, that Trump would actually be upset because he wants more chaos yes. at the border. That's true. So he can complain about the chaos. Right. It's all cynical, top to bottom, all the way down. Yeah, it's very both it's, parties. It's honestly very yeah. sad. It is it is actually a tragic situation because you know what we're talking about this in politics and all that. We're talking about millions of people. These are people's okay? lives. These are people's lives. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of them die actually on the journey. It's a very difficult journey. A lot of them, you know, children and others. It's, it's are one of exposed. the it's the, one of the biggest things they're going to do in their entire life. It's yeah. uprooting. It's bad from the place that they were born and raised to somewhere that they don't know. Right, and there's a lot of uncertainty involved, which is why it's not really fair to anybody, both the people who live here and the people who are coming here. But anyway, uh, the point is, is that it ain't getting resolved anytime soon, and uh, this is definitely a major standoff, and I, I am very curious to see how the Biden administration handles, if they're gonna escalate it or if they're just gonna let it sit kind of where things are. The current stasis is not a terrible situation for Biden because look, it's to his benefit that less people come in. The, the Texas governor, I mean, this guy, like he can ride off this for the rest of his life, I'm telling you. <laughs> you know, in terms of like, this has mobilized the right in a way that I haven't seen also in a long time. You got Governor Youngkin, Abbott, every, Brian Kemp and all these people are like, come on, Governor Abbott, all of this. Abbott's gonna be a star, you know, in the Republican party uh, riding off of something like this. He wants confrontation with the feds. I yeah. wonder if Biden will give it to him or not. I don't really think it's in his interest either. There is no major, as you said, Democratic constituencies like, no, Joe, Democrats, go stick it Democrats to Democrats don't want to think about it. They don't, exactly. They don't want to think about it. They just kind of want the whole thing to go away. So we'll see. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Fistle Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. All right, let's move on to the Houthis. Uh, this is one where, Ryan, I'm really going to rely on you for this. I will just kick things off with a uh, really funny clip um, from the Pentagon where Pentagon reporters, who are smart, they're like, hey, so are we at war in the Middle East? They keep asking them this yeah. needling question. You guys bombed three countries yesterday, so what's going on? And the Pentagon just continue to beclown itself and say, no, we're not at war in the Middle East, even though, yes, we did bomb three countries yesterday. Let's take a listen. Well, Carla, we, we've been working for a very long time on regional security and stability, not only in the Middle East, but around the world. And so we'll continue to work very closely with allies and partners globally uh, to address tensions uh, in the Middle East. You know, since uh, Hamas's attack against Israel, of course, we've been very focused on deterrence and on preventing a wider regional conflict, and we'll stay focused on that. And what about his words on the brink? Is the U.S. on the brink of war right now in the Middle East? Uh, we are not at war in the Middle East. Clearly, there are significant tensions in the Middle East. And again, we're working closely with allies and partners to de-escalate and reduce those tensions where we can, recognizing the fact that, uh, you know, others have a vote as well. Okay, got it. Very yeah. clear. We're going to keep de-escalating tensions with these bombs. It seems obvious to me he doesn't want to say we're at war because legally we're not at war. And Can't, legally, yeah. Congress is the one who is supposed to authorize war. The, the best one was on Tuesday. Uh, one of the many countries that we bombed was Somalia. Mm -hmm. And the uh, AFRICOM put out a statement announcing the bombing and said, in an act of self-defense, yes. uh, U.S. forces bombed Al-Shabaab militants. Like self-defense? Mm -hmm. You flew... You flew halfway around the globe just to bomb people in Somalia, and you're going to pretend to tell us that this was about self-defense. Mm -hmm. Maybe you needed to do that. Maybe these were the worst people on the planet, and it's, and it's wonderful that your, your bombs you know, blew them to smithereens. But let's not pretend that this had anything to do with self, imminent self-defense. Yeah, and you, right. had, uh, you had Mike Lee, Todd Young. Uh, Chris Murphy and Tim Kaine, who are, mm -hmm. you know, these are some, you know, serious. Very across the. Yeah, yeah across yeah. the board here. This is not, this is not Bernie right. uh, teaming up here with anybody. Uh -huh. Writing to the White House saying, if these are, you, that you have the right to respond immediately in a self-defense capacity. Obviously, there's a, a ship somewhere, there's a boat coming at it or a missile coming at it. You, mm -hmm. you can take action against that threat. Nobody says you need to, like, get a declaration of war to Congress uh, before you can stop a, a speedboat, you know, with, with explosives attached to it. If you are in prolonged hostilities that you have entered yourself into, you need authority. Even Ben Cardin, uh, who's as close to uh, the White House, as hawkish as, as you can get, mm -hmm. uh, said, 
that they, if they're going to continue this, they're going to need to get on on sounder legal footing. Like so, across the board, people are recognizing that th- that this is not really sustainable. I love hearing from the the Defense Department because the the words that they use are so just the opposite of what we understand them to mean. Well, they're all couched in legality. So like you said, U.S. forces have the authorization to act in self-defense basically anywhere, and they can do anything that they want to. That's why they say it all the time. And they keep saying that we really don't want the uh, the war to spread. We want want the hostilities to Mm de-escalate. And the way their argument, to to give them as much credit as possible, is that that deterrence is the thing that is going to de-escalate. And the way that you get your deterrence is by dropping bombs everywhere because then everybody's scared of you and and they're going to retreat. Problem for them is that there's no evidence that Iran or its proxies are deterred uh, by the fact that we have lots of bombs. To that, uh, to that, Ryan, there was an interesting thing I wanted to get your take on. Let's put this up there on the screen, where the U.S. is currently asking China to help bail it out of the Red Sea Incredible. attacks. It says the U.S. has asked China to urge Tehran to rein in the Houthi rebels. According to American officials, they have repeatedly raised the issue with top Chinese officials in the past three months. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and others actually spoke directly to the head of the Chinese Communist Party's international department. So did the Secretary of State. And yet there has been zero Chinese pressure so far. What do you make of this? Is it an admission of diplomatic failure? Is it, I mean, I I personally think it's just humiliating because you have your main geopolitical rival and you're going to them and you're like, hey guys, this is bad for you too. (laughs) And they're like, is it? They're like, because I'm raking in cash. You know, I'm like, you're the, your carriers, the ones who are paying all these extra prices, euros, you guys are the ones paying for the inflation. They're like, we're sitting here pretty. We're actually doing fine. The the fact that this idea ever got off the State Department Uh whiteboard shows (laughs) just how bankrupt and out of ideas they are. So we could count the layers of absurdity here. First of all, the Houthis have actually, uh, the Houthis are warning ships before they fire on them, and the Houthis have told Russia and China that they're not going to attack Russian and Chinese ships as long as those ships are not going to Israeli ports. We don't talk about that here in the United States because Mm. we pretend that the Houthis are are, uh, a a kind of nihilistic bunch of pirates Mm -hmm. who are just doing... These, thing, these mean things to these ships for no reason. Russia and China are both aware of what Houthi, the Houthis' regional interests are and what their global interests are and what their domestic interests are, and it's not to attack Chinese and Russian ships. So, so why are the Chinese and Russians uh, so concerned about it? Now, so, some of, a lot of Chinese goods operate on you know, U.S.-linked ships. So that's where the U.S. thinks, okay, China's having a problem here because now shipping costs are going up. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we have the, we can put the Suez Canal traffic Guys, can we please put up so uh, the next that's, element, that's please, the B3? Element. Yeah. So you're seeing Suez Canal traffic just absolutely plummet. That's raising prices of shipping. Mm-hmm. The State Department thinks to itself, okay, well, now the Chinese are upset because they're spending a little bit more uh, for shipping costs. Th- that That's absurd the, the, because, you know, China is sitting on, you know, mountains of our cash. Uh, the, for geopolitical advantage, they're constantly spending that money, and they're they're okay to take a little tiny hit if if it is causing us as much geopolitical uh, damage as it is. So right off the bat, there, there's no reason to think that the Chinese are going to bail us out uh, because we're getting hurt worse uh, by it uh, than than they are. The the maybe third or fourth layer of absurdity is that China, first of all, Tehran does not run the Houthis. Tehran has influence over mm-hmm. the Houthis. U.S. has influence over Israel. Israel operates with its own agency Good point. as well. But China does not run Tehran. Mm-hmm. 
They talk sometimes, and they do business. They, they talk. Yeah. They have influence. Right. China's a big country that Tehran's going to listen to. Absolutely. China's on the phone. Mm-hmm. The, the Iranian The Ayatollah, guy, gonna, yeah, he's going to pick he, it up. He's taking right. that call. He's leaving right. whatever meeting he's going to take that call. That does not mean that he's going to do whatever China asks him mm-hmm. to do. Good point. Yeah, I think all of this, you know, is, as we always say, you know, it's not like the Houthi thing came out of a vacuum. A lot of it stems back to Israel. And this is where the interesting point about Israeli pressure domestically for a ceasefire may be increasing. Let's put this up there. We gave some of the preview of this the last time that we did a show together, Ryan, about these Israeli mm-hmm. hostage families that crashed into this Knesset meeting. But this time, you know, it's getting really starting to get attention internally. And they say here, the Israeli hostage families, quote, have nothing to lose in this push for a new deal. And the new deal uh, that the Israeli government, the war cabinet had approved, was a release of all hostages in exchange for a two-month ceasefire. Doesn't seem that it's being you know, widely entertained, but clearly there's a lot of pressure because you have 132 hostages who remain in captivity. They say 28 of them are believed to have been dead, either of injuries of Hamas or uh, claimed to have been killed by Israeli troops currently in the situation. But In general, it does seem that many of these families have, quote, now mounted large-scale demonstrations, met with officials, and are papering the entire country with posters, including traveling abroad to try and uh, drum up Mm. global awareness. What do you make of that pressure inside of Israel and what effect it might have here on the Houthi situation? I think politically speaking, oh, and one complication that also never gets mentioned in the press that we should let our uh, viewers into is that Hamas does not actually have all of these hostages. Mm -hmm. Like, Hamas has released a lot of uh, the civilian ones, what's remaining are mostly uh, you know, uh, soldiers IDF, and other- reservists, et cetera, yeah, police But officers, a yeah. bunch of gangs and thugs and, and other groups mm-hmm. went over the border on October 7th and have some. We don't know, nobody knows how many, but it, it absolutely is some and a non-trivial number. And so it's not even clear that Hamas, mm. and, and Hamas may be embarrassed in, in that sense because you know they're supposed to have total control. So you mean like criminal gangs, Palestinian Islamic Jihad? Like that, people and they might not yeah. even like- ha- know where they are or have mm. the capacity. Like it, Hamas could reach a deal with Qatar, reaches a deal with Israel, and then Hamas might not be able to deliver on some of these. Wow, so some of that is embarrassing for them. Right. Um, but separately, from the Israeli government perspective, I feel like they had, they have politically, they have two options. You know, they can reach a deal that uh, releases the hostages, or they can achieve their military objectives of annihilating Hamas wiping out the Palestinians and kind of basically repopulating it with Israeli settlements, which you hear from so many of the far-right members of the of the current Israeli government. They are clearly failing at that first one. Like Hamas is not eliminated. Uh, their, their, their efforts to clear buffer zones just mm-hmm. the other day led to 21 is, uh, Israeli casualties. And so I think from, from an Israeli public that is saying, okay, you're not accomplishing your primary objective if you were, then maybe we could understand what you said in the beginning, that you were going to be ruthless with the hostages. But if you're not accomplishing your military objective, then just get the hostages back. Like, you no longer have an excuse to refuse to negotiate over these hostages. And, and they, so they, they came forward with this two-month ceasefire offer uh, where there'd be a pause, they release all the hostages, there'd be some release of Palestinian hostages— and then the hostilities would resume. Mm-hmm. And Hamas, and I think a lot of Palestinians are like, so in two months, like, are, are you gonna let in enough humanitarian aid? Like, it's, it's not an end to this crisis. And then uh, we've lost our bargaining chip, and then you're just going to just continue 
you know, carpet bombing the place. That's so. a good point. That's actually a good segue to our next part here about the hostage, uh, what is it, the demolishing buildings and the buffer zone. This is where those 24 soldiers were actually killed in one of these missions. Let's put this up there on the screen. This was part of the mission. It says, Israel demolishing buildings to create a buffer zone within Gaza. Uh, it's unclear today what that buffer zone exactly is, how big it would be, and whether it would be sanctioned by the international community. So, Ryan, can you give us some of the details here and how this will fly in the face and you know have problems with overall U.S. Yeah. diplomacy? So basically, the, the Iron Dome cannot protect uh, is, Israeli uh, kibbutzim mm -hmm. that are right up against the, the Strip, for obvious reasons, right. you know, if, you, if you're that close. And that's why so many, um, basically all residents, uh, in uh, Israeli residents in that area have safe rooms so that these mortar shells are constantly fall, you know, coming from Gaza and landing near uh, the, these kibbutzim. And so they, they would sleep in safe rooms. Um, uh, that, th and they thought that that was kind of a, enough that they could kind of quote unquote manage the conflict in, in the long term. October 7th mm -hmm. proved that not to be the case. And so currently you have a displacement crisis in Israel because you have tens of thousands of people from the north that have uh, left, north of Israel, that have left because of the fighting Hezbollah, with yeah. Hezbollah. And you have tens of thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands of people who have left the, the Negev Desert because of the hostilities in, in Gaza. And so they're, they're living in hotels, they're living with relatives. Mm -hmm. uh, there was already a housing crisis in Israel, yes. which, which is related to why there are now 700,000 settlers in the, in the West Bank, mm -hmm. because it's cheap housing for the Israeli population, just like in the United States, the one way we buy off our population, uh, you know, cheap housing, yeah. go, go West, young man. And so, in order to relieve that, they're trying to get people to be able to move back to the kibbutzes in southern Israel. And and what what they are now saying is, we need a buffer zone. So we're going to demolish all of these uh, civ civilian and residential areas that are kind of within um, X distance. Yes. And this one was only 600 meters away from a, from a kibbutz. Um, but there's others that are that are further away. Say anything with a line of sight, mm -hmm. uh, they're going to knock down. International law is extremely clear. I was going to say, so how does yeah. this complicate U.S. diplomacy, international law, and all? Of Under international law, if you want a buffer zone, you have to use your own territory mm -hmm. to do it. Like, you, you don't want to live too close to right. us. Like, it's like it, it, it's like if San Diego wanted a buffer zone between it and Tijuana, they'd have to knock down San Diego. Mm, you can't you can't go into right, Tijuana right, right. and be like, this is too close. Yes, we're leveling this. Right, and so. Uh, Separately, the United States, international law, whatever, that, that, that is what it is. The United States has said one of their lines, and mm -hmm. I want to call it a red line because they've said there are no red lines, but mm -hmm. one of the public things that they've insisted Israel not do is take land from Gaza uh, to create buffer zones. They've said, do not do that. Israel, Israeli government continues to say, we are going to do that. So I have some update on that. Uh, John Kirby was actually asked about this by the Financial Times. He says, quote, we do not want to see the territory of Gaza reduced in any way. Yep. However, the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, struck a softer line on Tuesday saying that while the U.S. is clear about not encroaching on Gazan territory, there might be scope for, quote, transitional 
arrangements. Uh, I'm not exactly sure <laughs> what that means, but I think actually- New the, euphemism just dropped. Yeah, I love that. Uh, the major you know, actual diplomatic crises that might come out of this may not involve America. It's actually probably Egypt. Let's put mm -hmm. this up there on the screen. Egypt actually lashed out yesterday saying that extremist Israeli leaders are seizing Gazan Egyptian buffer zone territory because of Netanyahu's suggestion that Israel is going to have to take control of the 100-yard buffer zone on the Gaza side of the Egypt and Gaza border. The Israelis are like, hey, this is the Philadelphia corridor. This is the above ground and through tunnels. This is where a lot of the supplies and the smuggling and the weapons and all that comes through. The head, actually, of the Egyptian State Information Service said on Monday, this is an attempt to create legitimacy of the Israeli government's real goal of occupying the border corridor in violation of the security agreements that have been signed between those two neighbors. Well, remember that if we go back and we think about Oslo and we think about some of the other uh, international agreements, all the way going back to 67 and you know Jordan and all the control of the border and all of that, Egyptian control of that border has always been very important. Mm -hmm. The Rafa crossing today remains the main thoroughfare of humanitarian aid and oh, others. Yeah. And especially yeah. if we consider, you know, in the future, the idea the idea of people in Gaza crossing the Israeli border to go work in Israel probably seems like zero for me. But what do you think? The next five years? I don't think that's going to happen. And so it's, if that's it's, the case- It's very hard to see. Yeah, it's just yeah. not going to happen, right? So if we think about that, then we're talking about really the only way in and out of the country. And they're like, no, we're going to take control yeah. of that. That really is going to rankle a lot of people inside of Egypt because this right. is now a problem of sovereignty on their part and of a violation of an agreement that they have right. signed. And these people have fought two wars in the past. It's not a joke. Right. And, yeah. and the Egyptians and the Palestinians and the UN have all said this humanitarian crisis where we're talking about um, two million people being you know in the grips of famine on the mm -hmm. brink of starvation dying dying from disease is caused by uh, the Israeli government you know restricting the amount of humanitarian aid that can get into the country there is also a border in the north um, between Israel and Gaza right. that is just completely shut down Israel has complete control over that if if they they could load every truck and make sure that all that's in there is baby formula, di diapers, and aspirin, and, and roll those trucks through there. There would be no question, because the Israelis are the ones loading the trucks, that there are gonna be weapons or RPGs or new ammo for, mm -hmm. for Hamas. The people in the north are perhaps suffering more than even the people down in the south, because Israel's blocking uh, getting humanitarian relief through their own border, and is also bombing any convoy that goes from the south up, up to the north and mm. refusing to deconflict. And so you have a situation where people are just uh, scrounging like absolute Hunger Games style stuff in, in the north. Yeah. And so Egypt is then like, and you think we're going to turn over the southern border to you as well, which is our border, given what we have seen you do? Like you have lost all moral legitimacy to, to maintain any, any, uh, any, any immigration or border control mm -hmm. on the Egyptian side. Um, and so, and also CC and BB have not spoken since October 7th is, is what the reporting is. Wow. With, and That's they, crazy. You know, I did not know that. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's the, it, they're at a nadir, like, because the Egyptian and Israeli normalization was one of the great triumphs mm. of Israeli foreign policy. All right. Final thing, Ryan, you've got a, uh, you've, you have got a story for us, uh, involving playing cards. Why don't you tell us? So we have a picture of said playing cards, uh, you can put up there 
off screen. Uh, these are reminiscent of, uh, what were these? The uh, same playing cards from the Iraq war. And now these are being sold. Uh, and you are you have the exclusive on the story. So go ahead, tell us about it. Yes, in fact, we do have an exclusive here. So a, okay. a, a group of critics of Israel's war effort, okay. uh, led by a man named Ashish Bashar, who's a kind of UK kind of political consultant. You may have heard of him, uh -huh. uh, kind of well-known in, in the UK, worked for uh, Boris Johnson, sure. uh, uh, Tony Blair, as when Tony Blair was Mideast envoy. Uh, the rest of the folks involved in this are, are remaining anonymous, but they have created a deck of cards kind of <laughs> modeled after the U.S.-created uh, deck of war criminal cards uh -huh. in the Iraq, during the Iraq War. Remember, they were going out and trying yes, to find I do. a six of spades or whatever. Yeah. They're also working uh, loosely uh, with a... a international human rights organizations and prosecutors around the world mm -hmm. uh, in at least these countries, Switzerland, Mexico, Bolivia, Ireland, Spain, Belgium, and Colombia. And in each of these countries, uh, they are they're finding, they're working with either human rights organizations or prosecutors to try to file charges. If they can get an Irish judge um, in, to issue arrest warrants, Any, anybody who comes into the EU at that point oh, interesting. is going to struggle. Yeah, that's an so the point. The, the cards are a propaganda device to keep it in the mind, keep it. it in people's minds. But here, let's here, I'll, I'll show you a couple of them here. Okay. So here we got uh, the six of spades is Brett McGurk, who is okay. kind of the Mideast U.S. Envoy, Middle East US, envoy. The ace of diamonds, Netanyahu. Netanyahu, makes uh, sense. Ace of clubs, Matt Miller. Huh. Impressed. Okay. Impressive. State gave Department spokesperson. Matt Miller. So let's see if you can follow. Yeah. You have any, you have any money on you? Uh, yes. Here. Oh, here All right. Go. What do we need? Okay. Let's play for 20. What do you think? 20 bucks? Jeez. Okay. All right. Here you go. You got to follow. Yeah. How about you? How about you follow? You want to follow Netanyahu? Yes, I'll follow. Right. I'll follow Netanyahu. Ace of diamonds. Okay, Ready? Here we go. Yes. All right. Right. Oh. All right, it's yours. It's yours, Ryan. That, Take it. Keep it. And you can keep Netanyahu. Okay, thank if you, you. If you see thank him, you report him to authorities. All right, we'll have a link down in the description uh, for all of that. You can keep all it. Right. Oh, all right. Oh, it's at thewarcriminals.com if people want to buy their own oh, deck. Oh, wow. 40%, that is a pretty prized... Uh, that's for, a pretty 40% prized. of profits is, are going to uh, Gaza charities. Uh, the rest is being kept for taxes and also for possible defamation judgments in the future. All right, all right. Which is... Always nice to set that aside if you've got a deck of war criminal cards. Interesting stuff. We'll have a link down there in the description. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. 
Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Okay, let's move on to Boeing. There's some crazy stuff going on in the world of Boeing. The Alaska Airlines CEO, who originally it was their plane that was affected by those loose door plugs, has now come out and said to NBC News that actually they have found many other aircraft that have been affected by that issue. Here's what he had to say. We found you know, some, uh, some loose bolts on uh, many of our MAX 9. So those- Many? Yeah. Uh, so those are things that are going to be rectified uh, through the inspection process. Flight 1282 was a new Boeing MAX 9. The door plug covers an unused emergency exit in planes with fewer seats. It makes you mad. Tom, it makes you mad that we're finding issues like that on brand new airplanes. Thankfully, no one was sitting next to the plug when it exploded. Looking at that video and those photos, did you think, my God, what if somebody were sitting there? There were only seven open seats, and uh, we had a guardian angel, honestly, on that airplane. And I just want to take uh, uh, a moment here to say how sorry I am for our guests on Flight 1282 for what they experienced. It was just a terrifying flight. It makes me angry, Tom. Boeing is better than this, uh, and um, uh, Flight 1282 should never have happened should never have happened. That's a pretty diplomatic way of saying, screw you, Boeing. And uh, look, Boeing has had some real issues now in the last month. Let's put this up there. In the last 20 days, uh, Boeing 737 has a panel ripoff in midair. Cockpit windows cracked on January 13th. Boeing 737 stranded Anthony Blinken. Boeing 747 cargo plane burned up in the sky. January 20th, Boeing plane in Atlanta loses a wheel. And January 25th, Boeing has to pause all production, quote, for a quality focus day. And I would say that's pretty warranted because the news is now coming out from the Seattle Times, which has done phenomenal investigations into Boeing now for years and years. And they say that the door plug that blew off of the Alaska Airlines MAX 9 jet this month was removed for repair and reinstalled by Boeing mechanics at its Renton assembly line, citing a person who was familiar with the matter. Boeing is refusing to comment, saying that they cannot do so because of the NTSB investigation. But this shows that currently... Boeing had the key role in installing and checking that part. Previously, Boeing was trying to uh, put some of the blame or at least cast doubt that it may have been their fault. It could have been their supplier, Spirit Aerosystems. What people forget is that Spirit Aerosystems was actually spun off by Boeing back in 2005. It was part of their whole like financial reorganization of the company. You could spin it off. You could still buy from them. It's all just BS you know, in terms of uh, boosting their stock. Uh, same thing in terms of the stock buybacks. But what's coming to light now is is a genuine crisis, I think, for this, you know, for this company, because you have now three incidents 
from Alaska Airlines to the 737 Maxes that literally fell out of the sky and killed hundreds of people in the span of, what, five, six years? Yeah. That's how you kill a 100-year-old company. Yeah. When people are dead, and as the CEO said, I mean, if somebody was sitting there, it's very possible it could have been sucked out of the sky. And actually, yeah. even if nobody was sitting there and that accident happened at higher altitude, from what I had read from aviation experts, absolutely it's on the table. For yeah. There was an incident uh, over a uh, United flight many, many years ago over, I think it was over the ocean. It was like somewhere to Honolulu. Same thing. It was like nine people got uh, sucked out of the plane. They never even found their bodies. Yeah. Imagine that. That's a whole other story too. Right. And they definitely, I mean, they would have been directly responsible for that if it's their fault here. Yeah, when as a as a flyer, you start going from, oh man, I, I hope I can get the emergency row mm -hmm. so I can have extra leg, yes. leg room to like, <laughs> hope I don't get the emergency row because I might get sucked out the door and into the sky. Then you know you have a problem. Yeah. Uh, Pete, Pete Buttigieg is announcing, you know, the Lever News has been doing great yeah, work they on the road as yes. news organization. Uh, following some of that, uh, the judge announced a, quote, bigger picture exam okay. of Boeing issues. Thank you. I, I don't know what little picture uh, <laughs> the <laughs> yeah. judge and, and his FAA were looking at when it came to Boeing, because basically Boeing is it. Like, Boeing is the, is the kind of U.S. airline manufacturing. We have a duopoly like, in, in airlines, right? We have Airbus and we have Boeing. And, and it's in, it's a tragedy. Boeing's because defense, it was uh, an Airbus plane that stranded Justin Trudeau. You remember hilariously? Okay, yeah, that's. But right. I bet yeah. that was shenanigans yeah. on the part of somebody. Here's the thing. Here's why it matters the most. Airbus is a European company, so that means that let's say push comes to shove and we got to look out for ourselves. We've only got Boeing. That's it. They yeah. cranked out a hundred thousand planes in World War II. Nowadays, we really trust U.S. pilots on top of a Boeing aircraft. I don't know. And they've got a century now, you know, of, of work that they have done to invest in this brand. It was one of the most important iconic brands in the world, I would say. Think too of the '80s and the story. You know, actually even before that, of the pride that the people in Seattle and Washington mm -hmm. had of working for this company, of knowing that millions of people set foot on their aircraft, that you know they had one of the low, the best safety rates in the entire world. And then, you know, all throughout the 90s and the 2000s, they start spinning off companies, they start reorganizing, they're moving their headquarters. It becomes basically a financial bank as opposed to an actual airline, or sorry, an aircraft manufacturing company. And now, you really are reaping the rewards of that. And, we, and the craziest part is we all thought it had stopped after- right. Those two planes fell. Right, that was a wake-up call for them. It should have been the right. wake-up. I mean, you have you know hundreds of people who are dead. It's a problem with a culture. It's directly your fault. Yes, and it's yeah. and it's it's a culture. You saw it change. You know, coming out of the kind of New Deal era, you've got this this like consensus between the state and these giant corporations yes. that there's a, there's a welfare, general welfare mm -hmm. kind of attitude around the the business uh, approach. In the 80s and 90s, it becomes just pure financialization. Mm -hmm. Like, how do we extract as much capital? out of this company and give it to investors. And so that's why you see uh, them spending so much on you know, stock buybacks uh, and, and otherwise just uh, hiring a bunch of people who are like McKinsey types to look at their system and figure out ways that they can make it more profitable. The, the board, they, they lo Boeing lobbied against a, a rule that would have required that most of their board know what they're talking about when it comes to like 
flying an airplane <laughs> because instead they Wait, you mean having Nikki Haley on your board is not actually it turns a out, benefit to the company? It, it turns out that is that uh, it is saying? a benefit to the company in yeah. terms of uh, profitability <laughs> yeah, right. and making sure that you can keep the money flowing yeah. into the company and then back out to investors. But yeah, it turns out Nikki Haley doesn't know a whole lot mm. about actually Shocking. flying or building an airplane. And, and they, they fought against a rule that would have required the board to know what they were doing. Yeah. And this is why it's tragic is look at the Alaska Airlines guy. You know, at a certain point, it's like, and by the way, Alaska Airlines, I love Alaska Airlines. It's a great, yeah, it's great airline if you ever yeah. get the chance to fly it. Uh, the thing is, is that they're pissed because they're like, who else are we supposed to buy airplanes from? Yeah. Well, we had a deal. We paid you billions of dollars for these aircraft Making that we're supposed to fly. Yeah, that's it. It was like, we're supposed to just work. And now, you know, like he said, his brand is tarnished. It's not just him. United also, they were a huge purchaser of uh, 737 MAX 9s. Let's put this up there. The CEO of United and now Alaska Airlines are coming out and they are really pissed with Boeing and the manufacturer. I mean, what they're saying, and, and, and you have some of the quotes here, are just withering. They say, well, we're at least going to build a plan that doesn't have to have the MAX 10 in it. This is United Airlines. It's one of the largest airlines in the world. We will hope Boeing gets its certification at some point. We're just going to build an alternative plan that doesn't have that. That's devastating. And already, Delta actually just bought a ton of Airbuses. I believe that they already had existing in their stock. But the same problem remains is that if you have U.S. airlines not even buying from a U.S. company that increases all the problems with globalization, with where it's assembled. I mean, I saw a meme posted online. It's like, guys, you know, Airbus is a company where they barely work like 35 hours a week yes. and they, they, can, they, they can a year these euros yeah. who barely and even they shut go to down work. in august they, they almost all of august yeah, like, Airbus shut is down. down they barely go to work and they build better planes than us what the hell is going on in the on? south of france uh, <laughs> sipping sipping like uh yeah rosé exactly yeah. yeah they're going to provence and hanging out in burgundy <laughs> and all this and it's like and the joke's on us because our guys at boeing are getting paid like not that much money they barely have they even know, live in provence. functioning they, yes. they, they have non-functioning pensions and they're CEOs and executives are flying around like gajillionaires. There's also been a really troubling report from View of the Wing. These are some airline-specific uh, aviation news outlets, which have been fantastic. And this one just came out a couple of days ago. It says, what Boeing whistleblower production line, quote, has an enormous volume of, def volume of defects on the MAX 9 and were not installed. This came, one of their whistleblowers says, I will w save you waiting two years for NTSB to just come out and give it to you for free. The reason that door blew off is stated in black and white in its records. It is very stupid and it speaks volumes of the quality culture at certain portions of this business. Why did the left hand, you know, blah, 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 blah bolt fall out? Simple, as has been covered in numbers of articles. There are four bolts that prevent the mid exit door plug from sliding up off the roof stop fittings that take the actual pressurization loads in the aircraft. Uh, the, these four bolts were not installed when Boeing delivered the airplane. That's it. Our own records reflect this. How crazy is that? The four bolts that are supposed to be there to make sure that the door does not fall off in the middle of the sky did not work. It's just yeah. nuts. I mean, we're sorry, we're not installed on the aircraft whenever it was delivered to Alaska, which explains why their CEO is so angry there in that interview. So, you know, just yeah. another example of the degradation of that company. Some we talked, I did a monologue on about the financialization. It really is a tragedy and it gets to exactly what you said about the government and more.
Okay, let's move on now to, uh, uh, like I said, the fun segments, <laughs> to the two fun ones that we had to get into the show. Senator Chuck Schumer, uh, who has long been kind of a hall monitor uh, whenever it comes to uh, uh, to substances that people may be enjoying, say, uh, you know, Four Loco, which was uh, certainly uh, quite a bit of fun that was barely knew you for Loco. I, was college. I, I barely knew. It was actually banned my freshman year in college, uh, which we will never forget, I can tell you, those of us who were in a fraternity at that time. Uh, Chuck Schumer now returning uh, to now another fraternity, I guess, substance of choice, which is Zen, calling for a crackdown and a pouch full of problems. Here's what he had to say. Pouch packed with problems, high levels of nicotine. So today I'm delivering a warning to parents because these nicotine pouches seem to lock their sights on young kids, teenagers, and even lower, and then use the social media to hook them. Uses the uh, social media to hook them. I'm not so sure about that one. Zin, uh, for those who don't know, is like the oral nicotine pouch. It was developed, you know, after many of the cancer problems came to light around chewing tobacco, smoking, etc. And there's actually been a real resurgence, I would say, in uh, nicotine usage these days because they've been able to disaggregate it from, you know, tobacco and the carcinogens, which are in that. It just led to a lot of really interesting discussions. If people are interested, Andrew Huberman did an entire episode um, on nicotine. There's been a lot of discussion about the nootropic effects of nicotine. Again, if you are able to look at it in a synthetic form, uh, which is, you know, actually has quality control and all that stuff behind it, as opposed to inside of a cigarette, which is addicting you to smoking. I think there's a legitimate, you know, conversation, I think, to be had around all of that. But culturally, this one is very interesting because Clearly, they've touched a nerve. Uh, this very much gets to some of the barstool conservative ideas and things that I've uh, put out show, uh, before here on the show. For example, one congressman actually tweeting out, quote, Zin, come and take it, <laughs> in the same uh, way that we have the don't tread on me flag and, and other things. What do you make of this, Ryan? Because what, what fascinates me is Chuck also wants to legalize pot. Mm -hmm. So how can you be for legal weed and want to crack down on Zin nicotine pouches, which already, I believe in the state of New York, you have to be 21 years old or older to buy. I know at the very least, wherever the places I buy is from, you have to be 21 years old or older in order to be a consumer. And these people are pretty religious about checking it. So, I mean, this idea that they're being targeted towards children and all that seems ridiculous to me. You I, could make that case for Chinese vapes, for whatever those called, mm -hmm. the elf bars, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Yeah, maybe. But even then, I wouldn't necessarily uh, say that you should ban it. Although it's probably way less healthy to vape than it is to use Zin, which is the most yeah. ironic part of all of this. If Chuck does ever succeed yeah. in legalizing weed, yes. I'm sure on day two, yeah. uh, he will be coming after weed companies for marketing to kids. Yeah, I, so in I that sense, that. I doubt that. In that yeah. sense, it yeah. would be consistent. Uh -huh. um, which, and you know, I actually think that that's a, a good place for a society to end up. That interesting. That. Uh, adults should have, you know, a reasonable access to, you know, high quality and regulated products that mm -hmm. uh, aren't aren't going to uh, poison you, <laughs> and that kids should not be marketed to that, and that you know, developing brains should be you know protected from zin and whatever whatever else. It's like it's not as your brain is developing, it's mm. not good for you. Well, it's interesting to me. Uh, Even yeah, the weed you, kids. You, listen, you are you're absolutely right about weed. Let's let's be very, very clear about that. But what's fascinating to me, actually, is that this actually has caused a little bit of an organic pushback inside of Congress. So, for example, uh, you had many Republican congressmen and senators go on the record. Senator Tommy Tuberville uh, says, quote, it's going to make a lot of people mad. He wants to do that and then also cut out menthol cigarettes. We don't need to do that. The menthol one I have always found fascinating. And maybe you and I 
can talk about it because why would you target specifically menthol cigarettes? Now, their justification, as I understand it, is that menthol cigarettes are predominantly smoked by people in the black community, and thus you should ban menthol cigarettes basically for the own good of the people who smoke them. Now, that's to me seems outrageous because it's like you're protecting white cigarettes, but you're yeah. not, you're gonna regulate black cigarettes? Like, first of all, that's insane, and it's not just black people smoke menthols. I think a lot of people smoke menthols, even amongst the 20% of Americans are today who do still smoke. But why, like, how can you move to ban one type of cigarette, which is preferred by some, and then leave others as completely legal? That makes absolutely zero sense to me. The, the only discrimination yeah. to me that is, uh, that is that you can countenance is around age. And so maybe you've got some like hall monitors who would say, well, the Ki you know, kids like menthols more, but you're right. It's 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 racial. No, but the yeah. the public health justification I've seen explicitly says this is yeah, trying to protect right. Black Americans. Like they're right. they're being honest about it. The people who want to ban the menthols. So I'm like, what what? Like, how can you? First of all, you're making a decision. For are menthols somebody more, else? Are menthols more carcinogenic than regular? I don't know. Actually, I I've, I honestly don't know. I, the, the most I've ever read into it really was the racial angle. But I mean, I would just say this with cigarettes, with nicotine, with any of these things. It's like people who drink alcohol. Nobody is drinking alcohol call and be like, this is really good for me. You know what? I'm really improving my health right now. Uh, nobody, there, was an, there was an attempt of people to right. fool themselves for the red for wine while. thing. Yeah, <laughs> yes. this is BS, okay? And nobody Sorry. even believed that. Exactly. Yeah, it was a people, it was something that they could joke about yeah. while they were relaxing and have a good time. Everyone understands that's a trade-off. Same thing whenever it comes to cigarettes. I know a lot of people who smoke cigarettes. Nobody smokes because they're like, this is really good for yeah. me, okay? They're like, I enjoy it, it's a trade-off. I know that it people, may kill me. Some people smoke because they think it helps them uh, keep weight off. Okay, but once again, like, you know, they're doing they, that. But they, but they know it's hurting them. They know well. that yeah. they have, what is it, a 2,600% or whatever increase, even nicotine, uh, full mea culpa. I use nicotine, I uh, mostly chew nicotine gum. Not a lot, but I, and you know what, I know that it is, what is it, a vasoconstrictor. I know that it will have downstream health effects. I'm willing to make that trade-off because of the nootropic benefits. I think that it's a very, very powerful nootropic. I think it's one where there's actually a lot of discussion that remains to be had where, as a society, we, the vast majority of Americans either used to smoke or lived in a smoking household, 40s and 60s and all that. You know, you could think of the madmen and all that. And then, because of public health, we just all stopped using yeah. nicotine for a while. I mean, listen. Was it a net benefit or not? We like maybe, dumber? we definitely, you know, we live longer, but yeah, what about our mental clarity? You ever see those guys in Apollo? What is, what is everyone doing in Apollo 13? Yeah, they're figuring how out how to get How do you think we got the, to the moon? Yeah. Yeah, it's like, you think they figured out how to put a, a round f a filter into a square hole or whatever? You think they did that all by themselves? Okay. They need that performance Yeah, they need the cigarette. Yeah. Uh, now, look, I'm not, I'm not promoting smoking and it definitely is very bad for you. Same in terms of nicotine. It is a highly, highly addictive substance of which I have seen people go way down the rabbit hole. Many of these frat kids are not using it for nootropic benefits. <laughs> They're just buzzed out of their minds all the time. That said, you know, okay, it, you know, if we live in a free country. Now, many people would say, Sagar, how is this so hypocritical whenever it comes to your stance on weed? And people many misunderstand people would that, say that. But people misunderstand that. I am not for, I, I do not believe in the criminalization of marijuana. I do, however, however, think that there is a very unhealthy trend amongst people who use marijuana who are like, yeah, but this one kid with seizures took it and it cured them. And it's like, yeah, but you don't have epilepsy, dude. Right. Like you don't have childhood epilepsy. Like you're just a stoner. 
Like you're just sitting on your ass doing nothing. Um, and I think that there is not the same, and you correct me if I'm wrong, you seem more immersed in that world, perhaps than I am. There is less of an acknowledgement for people who are daily pot users in that doing that, they understand fully, they're like, this is bad. Like, this is not good for me. Right. And we have seen an explosion of high THC products that are on the market, totally unregulated, most of it coming from China, some of it, you know, really, really unhealthy. And really, you know, this is the other part nobody wants to talk about. Same with alcohol. You know, as alcohol can be very conducive to horrible behavior like drunk driving and to substance, uh, spousal abuse and all these other things, ask any cop how many alcohol-related instances are in. Marijuana, you know, it's driving while impaired is not necessarily good. We don't have no. the same cultural stigma against it. And, you know, I recently tweeted out a chart, kind of wish we pulled it for this segment, which was about the uh, in drug-induced psychosis cannabis is actually the number one substance that they have seen in which there is drug-induced psychosis, even more so than alcohol, cocaine, methamphetamine, and other. There's been long, you know, Tell Your Children, the book written by Alex Berenson, a link, and even Joe Rogan, a you know marijuana fiend, would acknowledge this, is that there is a link between very, very high THC, which is very much on the market right now, and people who are predisposed to schizophrenia having a full-blown psychotic mm -hmm. break. And people who yeah. would advocate for pot need to understand that. Yes, yeah, yeah I, think, I think that's fair. Uh, and for a community and a society to get there, you've got to have it mm. legal. You got to have it regulated. You have you have to have access uh, to product that you you know can trust and can can analyze and can understand. Uh, and and I think that a free people can work can work that out. But I think you're right that culturally, people need to acknowledge the downsides as well. Yeah, also in, in a way that they don't bad. quite with alcohol. They well, and alcohol is worse. What do you mean by that? So, like you said, yeah. everybody that drinks knows it's bad. Yeah. And, but also fun, yeah, or whatever. And then for some people, it's not even fun anymore. They're just kind of can't, just they can't annoying. quit. Yeah, right, that's true. Um, and there are a lot of people who have like full blown alcoholism, right. which we don't talk about enough in this country. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I think there's less willingness to recognize the downsides of weed compared mm. to compared to alcohol. I think one reason for that is that the downsides of alcohol are so much more obvious and clear and dramatic than the downsides of weed. That doesn't mean that there aren't downsides of, of yes. marijuana and right. cannabis. They, so you gotta, I think that is something they should I just wish I could hear that more from people who are obsessed with pot because you know all the data right now tells us that the, the increase, for example, in pot usage, everyone's like, see, there's a lot more pot. A lot of it is daily smokers. Mm -hmm. Like we have a whole new generation of high potency and the THC. Yeah. Exactly, edibles, you got marijuana and drinks now, lollipops, like all this. I can't even keep up with what the hell is going on here. Um, and within all of that, there is not, again, the same culture, at least from my, you know, from my view of what I've been able to find. Same thing in terms of smoking. It's like, hey, you know, inhaling smoke in your lungs is still bad for you. Like yeah. it doesn't, ha just not just because it's not um, cigarettes doesn't mean that it's like good whenever you're smoking marijuana constantly all the time. There are a lot of, you know, health effects. Uh, again, I would recommend, Huberman did an entire podcast on marijuana, THC, and all of that. There's a lot of Check his nicotine one out too. You should. Yeah. It's it's very interesting. And again, I want to be very clear here. It is a highly addictive substance yeah. for which some people who use it will find it incredibly difficult to quit. Uh, there's a lot of differences in between people's genetics and their tolerability. Just as I'm a coffee fiend, I love caffeine. I always have, you know, I can drink five, six cups of coffee. I know people who have one and they can't even function. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, every, every person is different. And, you know, you should never, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Like when Whenever you're, you know, riding high on nicotine, you're going to be coming down. Trust yeah. me. Like, you know, there's, there's going to be down. The question is, is like, is that useful to you? You know, are you making an informed choice?
choice? Like, how does all that work? I think we should have the same culture around that with marijuana, of which I do not currently see right now. Yeah, I just see Fair it enough. everywhere. Also, the smell is terrible. Let's be honest, all right? You can't walk down a city street without smelling this shit. They all call right. it skunk for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of right. like the smell, but. I, miss, I wish Crystal was here. I wish, I wish she was here to talk about this. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Let's move on to the uh, John Stewart block, the final, the fun segment here. I'm, I'm really curious to see what you think, because you worked professionally in media whenever he was a really big deal. So the news is in. Let's put this up there. Uh, Daily Show, here it is, your moment of zen. John Stewart will be returning to The Daily Show, hosting it on Mondays, and will be the executive producer. This is after Trevor Noah has exited the show. This is after... Let's be honest, since he left, it's just been a disaster. It hasn't even yeah. come close to the cultural touchstone that it was. Under Jon Stewart, Stu- uh, Trevor Noah never was able to capture any of the energy. I think it was because Stewart, at his best, at his best, and this is where I'm really curious, was able to skewer CNN, MSNBC, and Fox. Yeah. He was definitely a thorn in the side of Fox, and Roger Ailes and all of them hated him. But CNN and MSNBC hated him too. Yes, Main, mainstream media because he he made fun of them ruthlessly. Uh, he was he's liberal, obviously. You know, Chris and I interviewed him. You can go watch that a couple of years ago if you want to. But in the Trump era, he never was able to recapture some of that. So when Chris and I interviewed him, for example, he would criticize the liberal media, but in a almost like a left perspective, he'd be like, well, but you guys are obsessed with Trump too. And it's like, well, that's not really like what the criticism is, I guess, per se. So do you think? he will be able to bring the same magic that he had from the 2010s to the current era, especially because we have lived through his Apple show. And let's be honest, the Apple show was not as good as the Daily Show. It just wasn't. But he, even on his Apple show, he had moments where he's, 
his interviewing technique, his style. Unparalleled, and I agree. He, and he makes it look so easy he too, yeah. which is an extra humiliation for the media. Right. Because like you see him do it, and the viewer's like, well, this is just a comedian with yes. using very, very basic common sense language uh, to just eviscerate this Larry Summers or, or whoever it is. And you're like, well, I wish it if it was that easy, he wouldn't be, <laughs> he wouldn't be who he is. One of the uh, coolest things I ever did on a Valentine's Day, we went to in 2000, uh, a taping of The Daily Show. Oh, interesting. Chris okay. Rock was the guest. Wow. There Wait, was, what year in 2000? 2000. Holy, yeah. pre 9-11, that's wild. It was, uh, um, and- uh, I went to his yeah. rally when I was a freshman in college. Remember that rally <laughs> the, here? To restore, rally sanity? restore sanity? That yeah. was actually pretty fun. I enjoyed myself. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the guys, it it will be, and he he was like the conscience of the left in a way because he was against the Iraq War, mm -hmm. and like it was back then, there was no social media to go to kind of connect with like-minded people. So all you had was the mainstream media gaslighting you by telling you that there's weapons of mass destruction and we have to go to war and and we have to cut Social Security and all of these other things, and the only kind of safe space, so to speak. Was The Daily Show. It was show. 11 o'clock, The Daily Show. You just watched it. like you, I would watch it online yeah. back in, you know, those old viewers pre-YouTube. I also, I, or was I it still- was 10 o'clock? I don't even remember. I, I honestly, I never yeah. watched it uh, live. I was I was living abroad. I was in high school at the time. And I would, you know, you'd have to fire up a VPN and then try and go watch mm -hmm. it on the Comedy Central website and filter through all the crap ads of whatever yeah. it looked like in 07. But you're right, you know, because of opposition to the Iraq war and kind of that dissonance, he, him and Vice were really, at the center, yeah. but there's a cautionary tale there. <laughs> Look at Vice today. And then also with Stewart, like you said, some of his interviews that he did, like with the vet veteran secretary or with uh, that woman at the Defense Department, I forget her name, the number two, um, Kathleen Hicks, mm -hmm. I think, where he humiliated her on on like, why can't you pass an audit? Yeah. <laughs> she, she was just so arrogant and annoying. He had a few, and he, I mean, he's done incredible work on 9-11 firefighters, mm -hmm. uh, for first responders, on the burn pits. He probably single-handedly is responsible for that. Let's put that aside, though. In terms of his monologues and commentary, it hasn't gone viral in the same way. Right. So that's where I'm really curious to see. Yeah, because the, the problem that he's going to have is, okay, let's say he makes fun of Trump's, I mean, right. uh, let's say he makes fun of Biden for being super old. Yeah. Like, easy, easy stuff. Right. And, you know, everybody will laugh, but on uh, so many Democrats will be like, that's but that's a butter email. Right. They can't handle that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, You're so that is so right. In the old days, he could make fun of Obama, and there was not a predisposition of the liberal viewer to be like, "That's racist." Right. You know, but it, it was funny. It was just funny. The liberals consider the stakes so much higher today. Yeah. Um, than when you know Obama running against McCain or right. something. Um, they they see Trump as this kind of existential threat to everything that they hold dear, and therefore. Any criticism, even valid, even criticism that they're like, yes, that's true, I agree with you, but you should not say it right now mm -hmm. because the threat outside the gate is so much greater. Uh, where does that leave? And that's, I think, one reason he kind of left and yeah. originally. He's like, where, where does that leave a comedian who wants to skewer all sides? Part of the reason I'm sad that he's coming back is that linear TV is just not the same. I mean, he left in 2015. It was already on its way out. And now, let's put this up there just to give people an example. Plus, can't resist dunking on CNN. CNN's ratings are now behind the History Channel and, quote, an obscure Western network in primetime ratings. They are struggling to get even half a million people total, not, you know, in the key demo, to watch. That's insane. I mean, that's like, I mean, 
at certain points, that's like a third of what we do here on like a daily basis. Right. And, and that just demonstrates to you like how much cultural cachet that they will have, you know, amongst the elites and all that, and how few people actually watch the network. It's all the right people. And but in their defense, that people will watch their stuff when live. it goes viral. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, no, ex you're exactly right. And that's, that's not always often good for them. Not always good for them, <laughs> exactly. And, and the other thing is with Stewart is, you know, at the end of the day, how they make their money there over at Comedy Central is people watching live. Right. Like, yeah, if you want to play the YouTube game, which is kind of what he was doing a little bit previously, that's fine, but there's a lot less money in that. It's a, yeah. it's a very different, you know, environment and all of that. So I'm really curious to see what he does with this. The return of the Monday night will be interesting, but even more interesting is what talent is he going to tap? You know, who is he going to have actually host or is he going to bring back a rotating cast of characters? And, you know, that's what he was really, really famous for doing. And he built such a talent. Yeah, basically, a talent basically every one of his correspondents became like a megastar. Yeah, John Oliver. Uh, I'm trying to think about Samantha B. Samantha B. Yeah, oh, well, some cautionary tales there too. Uh, isn't there, Ryan? Anyway, we, we are... I wish him nothing but the best. I love Jon Stewart. Uh, some, he was a major inspiration to a lot of the work that Crystal and I even initially, I remember when we first started rising like, and started taking off. I was like, who are some people we can like look and model ourselves afterwards? Stewart, whose name was at the top of the list. And by the way, uh, I've been trying to get him back here for a long time. So John, if you're listening, uh, you are welcome back here anytime and we can talk. I'll ask you many of these questions to your face. But otherwise, we have a great guest standing by, Emily Kopp, to talk about that lab leak reporting. Let's get to it. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. 
Joining us now is Emily Kopp. She's a reporter at U.S. Right to Know. She's done some of the best work that there is on the lab leak hypothesis on that investigation. She's joining us now for our, our latest report. Thank you so much for joining us, Emily. Great to be here. Absolutely. So we've covered your work here for a long time, and we have one of your latest that we can put up there on the screen. Let's see it. U.S. scientists proposed to make viruses with unique features of SARS-CoV-2 in Wuhan. All right, so uh, it's a headline, of which is, you know, we got a little bit of uh, some jargon in there. Unique features, SARS-CoV-2. I think that's COVID. Wuhan, I think I'm a little bit familiar. Some of our viewers probably know, but just break this down for the average person. They have a little bit of familiarity with COVID, with the lab leak and more. What did you find in this report? Sure. So it's a little bit of an understated headline. I'll give you that. But um, takeaway is origins of COVID solved, question mark. Um, (laughs) Basically, what we found is that some of the most unusual features of the SARS-CoV-2 genome, the things that made SARS-CoV-2 SARS-CoV-2, the most pathogenic virus of the last 100 years, were, I mean, they're very rare in nature, Mm -hmm. but they were central to the esoteric research interests of the top coronavirus virologists in the world, Ralph Barrick, and the top coronavirus collectors in the world, Peter Daszak and um, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. We also found that while these scientists told um, the U.S. government that they were going to be doing this high-risk virology at UNC under relatively strict biosafety protocol, they were actually going to secretly be outsourcing much of this research to the Wuhan Institute of Virology under an inadequate biosafety level, um, essentially in order to save on costs and to be able to do the work more quickly. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, obviously that is very concerning. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I would say so. So let's let's talk about the the Alex Washburn et al. preprint that kind of led to this reporting that you did. And so uh, we can go back to Bob Gary, too, who's a Tulane University uh, virologist who people might recall was involved in this, that first kind of famous uh, and now infamous conference call with Anthony Fauci, February 2nd or 4th or whatever, between the 1st and the 4th, where the, the virologists all at the beginning are leaning towards a lab leak and by the end of it are uh, pronouncing and organizing a public statements and and articles saying that there couldn't have been a a lab leak and everybody is crazy who thinks it is. So Bob Gary, at the time, observed uh, the makeup of COVID-19 and identified uh, some unusual features of it, which takes us to the Washburn paper. So what what did Bob Gary find and how important was that to your reporting? Sure. So I'll start out with what is, I think, um, indisputable at this Mm -hmm. point um, from our reporting, and then I'll get into the more controversial stuff. Mm -hmm. So the stuff that's indisputable is that the scientists working with the Wuhan Institute of Virology were interested in making engineered viruses in the lab and testing whether they could infect human receptors. And their so-called gold standard would be to identify viruses that could cause disease. Um, They were also knowledgeable about two things that could essentially supercharge a coronavirus into that gold standard of something that could cause disease in human uh, humanized mice. Mm-hmm. And those two features were a furin cleavage site at the S1-S2 junction of the spike protein mm-hmm. and a receptor binding domain that was very good at latching onto a receptor called ACE2. Um, and when SARS-CoV-2 first came out, those virologists who initially said privately, oh no, this looks engineered, and then came out with a paper that said 
if you think that this is engineered, you're crazy. They were privately very concerned about these two features, the fear and cleavage site at the S1S2 and the fact that it was sort of immediately very good at infecting human cells. Um, And so the documents that we obtained show they lay out their plan to create a model where they could create engineered viruses with these features that we later see in SARS-CoV-2, but that are exceedingly rare in nature. Yeah. So that that all is indisputable at this right. point, I think. There have been people, you know, people like Robert Gary who have really nitpicked um, and said, well, it's not a fear and cleavage site at the S1-S2, it's a fear and cleavage site at the S1 or, or, or S2. Um, but you know, the new documents we obtained make it very explicit that they were interested in precisely viruses like SARS-CoV-2. The Alex Washburn paper that you mentioned around restriction sites, I think that's a little bit more controversial and requires a little bit more scientific inquiry. But what they found in 2022 is that a pattern of restriction sites, and restriction sites are essentially um, little bits of code that occur in the genome that can be used in the lab to engineer new viruses, but they also... um, can occur naturally. Mm -hmm. But what they found, they did a a, a statistics around how likely is it that we would see this precise pattern. Mm -hmm. um, And they found it to be very unlikely. And so the new documents that we have, I mean, confirm their intention to create synthetic viruses with these restriction enzymes in six pieces, which is what the Washburn paper found. Um, And they also include a budget line for one of these specific restrictions. Right, let's talk, st- stop there and talk, talk about that. So the, the paper says, okay, there's these six different, you know, whatever they are. Uh, and they, they basically predicted, okay, if you were going to do this, what you would need would be this one particular enzyme of thousands of enzymes commercially that are available to do this research. And what you found is that they, in fact, did purchase that enzyme and did use this for, which suggests that they're doing the exact thing that was predicted. So not only do you have a regression analysis that shows the chance of this being formed uh, naturally is you know, infinitesimally small, but then they, then they add a prediction on top of it that you would need this particular enzyme. Uh, and the chance that they actually then purchased that, uh, and it all being a coincidence, takes it from infinitesimally small to me to impossible to be anything other than a smoking gun. So why is it still considered somewhat controversial, even among, uh, you know, some people who have always, who have recently been saying, yeah, I I believe I lean toward a lab leak, but I want to see more scientific inquiry on this. Yeah, it's sort of hard for us lay people to evaluate because it does require knowledge of um, statistics and of bioengineering. Um, So the number of people who can really evaluate these claims, I think, is pretty small. But um, some scientists who are a a bit more skeptical, like Alina Chan, they basically point to other viruses in nature that are very similar to SARS-CoV-2 having similar restriction sites. Then you get kind of another layer of complexity, which is that there is a debate about how many silent mutations you would see around these sites in nature versus in the lab. Um, And so I think that's something that scientists need to duke out. I think another, um, I guess, just a cautionary word I've heard is that Ralph Barrick, this coronavirologist who was working very closely with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, he was known for doing this sort of work without any of these sort of markings, without leaving the restriction sites in. Mm -hmm. Um, 
he patented noceum technology, noceum being the name of a insect in North Carolina where he's based. Mm -hmm. um, so it's almost unusual to find a pattern like this if we expect it to be Barrick's idea that the Wuhan lab was working with. Yeah, I mean, what really concerns me, Emily, is, like, I've never believed, obviously, in natural origin, but let me ask you then, this Crystal often does this, how would you steel man, you know, your reporting? What, what natural origin hypothesis at this point even bears scrutiny for a seasoned healthcare reporter like yourself? What would the, you know, the, the critics critics say in response to this? Um. <laughs> I know, I, I feel the same way. That's why I'm asking you. Yeah. Well, I think the possible coincidence of the pandemic first being detected at the wet market, um, that I think that story still hasn't been told. How is it that that was the first place where we started detecting cases? Um, I think the idea that early cases clustered around the wet market is based on um, a really bad analysis. I think <laughs> the idea that a spillover occurred at that market um, is based on an analysis that was recently uh, recently Early suffered trashed. a major correct yeah. yes, correction. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So, like, so it's hard. Um, but I, I do, you know, I'll give it to my opponents, I guess, mm. um, and say that I think it is hard to explain, um, just given the information that we have, the limited information, right. why it was the wet market that, you know, where we first. But can't can't we just say that? Well, yeah, that's where the Chinese first reported the cases. I mean, they're the ones who are responsible for, you know, they, we, they control the information that we get, not like not vice versa. It's not necessarily organic. Yeah. Continuing to like yeah. occupy the mind space yes. of the virologists who yeah. think are natural origin, I would say um, some of the first people who detected the pandemic were doctors in Wuhan. Right. Um, you know, I would also say I've done reporting showing that the doctors in Wuhan were censored um, very heavily and faced a lot of retaliation for early reporting. So whether that early reporting is actually reflective of the earliest cases, um, I'm not confident in that. Yeah, mm, good, but, great point. And so, I mean, given the documents you've obtained and the work that you've done, uh, right now uh, news outlets are busy submitting their their different articles for for Pulitzers. You know, I think. Uh, I don't even know if U.S. Right to Know is eligible uh, for a Pulitzer. I think you deserve one for the, oh, the you work that you've been doing on this. Yes. Thank you. But I'm I'm curious what it's been like to see so little mainstream media uh, follow up on on this reporting because we're talking about a, a pandemic that killed at least 25 million people. Correct me if I'm wrong here. Upended uh, our geopolitics. Upended our politics. Our economy. Uh, the number of people who are suffering. Uh, uh, from, you know, having lived through COVID, having, you know, and on, on and on is just, the damage is incalculable. And the evidence points to a small group of people breaking rules because, you know, the Obama administration had put in place restrictions around this type of research that they, you know, went around in order, uh, in order to do this. Small group of people, we're talking fewer than a dozen perhaps, um, doing something not on purpose, you know, but recklessly knowing that it was a possibility, uh, Anthony Fauci in 2014 said, that, you know, the, the potential risks outweigh the outweigh the benefits of this type of research. I think that's absurd, given uh, the the costs that we've endured. So, what's it been like uh, from your perspective to see so little uh, follow up at this point? The New York Times. If you only read the New York Times, you believe. That it's open and shut case, and it came out natural of the, origin. Came out of that, and you're racist. And it was a bad, and then it was a raccoon dog, and now you're just yeah. not supposed to even know. Anymore. Yeah. So yeah. What, what, what's it been like uh, to to know the opposite and? 
to watch this unfold? I mean, it's maddening. I, uh, it's, mm -hmm. It makes me feel like I'm <laughs> losing it a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I think some of the things that are at play are the same things that are making this show so popular. I think the mainstream media is becoming culturally irrelevant. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, I think my theory just kind of coming out of the health reporting space and knowing kind of the culture and some of the editors who are running the health and science desks at um, these major outlets, I think they're friends with Fauci, to be yeah. honest. Yes. I think it's just personal relationships um, and they really admire him. And I think they have a hard time grasping the idea that someone who had good intentions um, and who might not be a bad person might have made a catastrophic error in judgment. Yeah, I mean, to me, the smoke, if you'll remember Donald McNeil, who worked for the Times, he got fired, it was a bunch of controversy, and he came out later and he's like, look, I didn't believe it because I was friends with these guys. He, he literally said that. And they yeah. lied to him. We, yeah. have, we have the emails yeah, yeah. Uh, of them lie, like directly yeah. lying to he him. He came out and was like, I've known Anthony Fauci and Peter Daszak for 30 years, I believed them. And he's like, and I, they misled me. And I, he's open about it, but he can only be open about it because he's no longer within the system. So I guess, finally, you know, we can bring this. You effectively solve the case for us, but what else is there? Like, you're obviously gonna continue on the story. What other things are you gonna potentially inquire in? Can our audience help you? What can people point you in the right direction? Well, your audience can yeah. definitely, you know, follow us. Um, obviously, I think we're punching above our weight, but we're not Absolutely. the New York Times, yeah, so right. um, so that every little bit helps. Every um, follower, every mm -hmm. subscriber to our newsletter. Um, I think next steps. This, you know, latest document set I think lays out how SARS-CoV-2 probably got its unique features, mm -hmm. but we still don't have the starting genomic sequence, mm. and even the guys you know, the virologists who very strongly favor a natural origin have said a smoking gun would be identifying that virus in that lab in 2019. Got it. So I think if we can confirm that they were doing this experimentation with furin cleavage sites, with receptor binding domains that strong, or that bind strongly to um, ACE2 with something like SARS-CoV-2, that would be, I mean, game over, like truly mm. game over, indisputably. Got it. So. And I think also one thing the audience could not do is jump in and be like, I always knew this from day one. <laughs> Such a useless yeah. point to make. Stop it. Because it's even if we definitely did. That. Even if you well, did. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, dis it's dismissive of all of the, the great work that, right. that so many journalists have done to confirm your hunch. That's like, right. Your hunch, I'm sorry, yeah. YouTube audience, your hunch is not worth much. That's right. No, he's sorry. right. He's, he's right. And that's why... We need you to do the work that you continue to do. So uh, people can follow you on Twitter. What's the most helpful way people can help you? Um, I think subscribing to our newsletter, US Right to Know, okay. um, is All the right. most helpful We'll way. have a link yeah. down that in the description. Everybody go also support Emily's work, follow her on Twitter, et cetera, and we will see you guys later. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. 
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.